You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 29, Climate Change. Florence Daviot is CPAW's National Forest Program Director. And we're going to talk to her a bit about climate change. So, Florence, how long have you been working on climate change issues? Um, I've been working on climate change since about 2001. Uh, I used to work for an organization called the World Resources Institute, uh, where my work focused almost entirely on climate change. And then over time, I've kind of made a switch where I've been looking at at climate change and biodiversity issues side by side. Oh, okay. And what does CPAWS stand for? Oh, good question. It's the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. Uh, so CPAWS okay. is focused on um, protecting public lands here in Canada. Oh, all right. Okay. And uh, so what kind of interventions have you been involved with? Um, so I've been doing a lot of work on climate change, obviously, since 2001. I started uh, with a program that was called the Greenhouse Gas Protocol Initiative at the World Resources Institute, where the main focus of our work was to create a standard by which companies who were voluntarily choosing to track their greenhouse gas emissions um, could figure out, you know, what is what should they be accounting for and use tools to to create um their inventories, their corporate greenhouse gas inventories. So that was kind of where I started. Um, And uh, as that moved forward, I started doing a lot more work um, in the international climate realm. And so looking Mm. at how countries are um, making commitments around addressing climate change. And in particular, the piece that I was most focused on was how they were addressing their land use, uh, land use change in forestry emissions. So all emissions Mm -hmm. that are related to how we interact with our ecosystems. Wow. Um, So it sounds like you've been targeting uh, government to some extent and also companies to some extent. That's right. Well, they're very interlinked issues, obviously. Um, So, you know, on one hand, companies uh, oftentimes are the ones that are out on the landscape and are doing things um, that cause emissions. And governments are the regulators and or, um, you know, are creating programs and incentives um, to get companies to do things differently. Right. I think I think when a lot of people think about uh, helping and hurting the climate, they think about what they as individuals can do. Um, do you ever focus interventions on trying to change the behavior of individual citizens? Not directly. Um, I think that piece is really important, but for whatever reason, most of my work has been focused on um, you know, thinking more about the, the government and industry um, components of it and, and how mm-hmm. policy kind of helps people helps individuals um, make changes in their life so you know one of the challenges um, that we look at is um, transportation for example so when you're living in a in a place where everything is very far apart and the only way to get anywhere is in a car you're going to you're going to use your car so it's more thinking at a sort of at a landscape level how do we think about changing um, the ways in which people get around and the ways in which communities are are built so that people can make the choices they often want to make, um, which is to be more responsible. Right. And have you over the your your career with this, have you have you uh, learned about some things that work better than others when trying to uh, help the problem? 
Well, I think there's a bit of a timing issue. So I would say, you know, when I first started working on climate change, a lot of the work that we were doing was looking at voluntary actions. So how do you kind of tap into those leaders that want to change um, and help them have sort of the tools and the incentives to start making those changes without there being regulation? That kind of takes you so far. And then after a while, you have to start looking at okay, how, how do regulations come in and how do you create um, a broader structure where you're kind of bringing everyone along? So I think the timing is often the question because you kind of have to, um, you have to kind of support the people who are out in front of the curve um, to demonstrate the possible. And then you kind of have to bring um, government along in order to bring new people into the fold so that we're kind of developing increasingly uh, strong measures. So, wow, that's that's not what I expected. That's so interesting. Uh, you know that that it's all, that it's about timing. It's not that like oh this is the this is the intervention that works or whatever. It's no, you got to like look at the context and the situation and the timing and uh, and decide from there. No easy answers, I guess, huh? No, I think at least from my perspective, it's really important to start where where people are at, right? And so. Um, everyone that you run into has kind of a different history, a different way of thinking about the issue. And the best that you can do is to kind of meet them where they are in that moment and try to figure out how you're going to help them move into a path that makes sense for them. But that takes yeah. a lot of time and a lot of energy, obviously. So is climate change still important in the in the era of the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, or do you think that people only have the mental space for one world problem at a time? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think that, um, well, obviously, I think climate change is still very important. And and I've certainly seen, you know, in the media or in talking to decision makers and the, the federal government, for example, um, people are absolutely seeing um, climate change as being sort of a, the broader problem and the pandemic being, you know, an issue that we're facing now. And so when we're talking about green recovery in Canada, for example, um, we're looking at, okay, well, how do we take this moment in time where we're all kind of on hold to some extent to think about how to do things differently moving forward and what opportunities do we have to make sure that we're factoring in climate change and biodiversity in our decisions more centrally um, so you know so that we kind of have a new Canada that we're that we're happy with so I, I actually think people are I mean, Seeing this as an opportunity is kind of a strong word, but you know, to some extent, are are kind of taking the time that they've been, kind of unfortunately granted, I guess, to to think about mm -hmm. what can we do differently moving forward. Yeah, I think um, you know, uh, there's this naive idea that Canada is a cold place and that climate change is not a problem. But is there are there reasons that Canadians in particular should care about climate change? Oh, yeah. I think actually Canada is uh, will be very impacted by climate change. As we know, the, the temperature impacts uh, that are going to result from climate change are more extreme in the northern latitudes. And so even on average, Canada has already seen much more warming um, than, you know, uh, places that are closer to the equator. Um, permafrost melt, uh, um, wildfires. I mean, we are already seeing some of the impacts that are in floods here in Ottawa, certainly a big one. We're already mm -hmm. seeing the impacts and, and we know they're going to get bigger. We don't know exactly how, but I think it's really important for Canada to be thinking about, um, you know, how can we be more resilient to climate change and how do we make sure that we're um, building a Canada that has sort of these important 
climate change and biodiversity pieces linked in so that we are better able to face climate change and yeah. its impacts. And so th since this is a mind and psychology podcast, um, let's talk about the, the psychology of climate change a little bit. Do you find that people have feelings about it, like anxiety or anything like that? Yeah, I think increasingly, uh, one thing that has been really interesting to see that's a big change for me in the years that I've been working was to, to go out on some of the marches that we've had, the climate marches that happened, I guess, last year now, mm -hmm. um, right. you know, and uh, just seeing how many people are, are like out in the street feeling very strongly about it, wanting to see change, um, obviously having sort of enough anxiety about the future that they're willing to take time out of their, out of their day to, to come down, you know, grandparents with their kids, uh, sort of seeing that there's really a future that we, that we need to change or a, a concern about the future and wanting to do something and to take action to see change. Um, so I, from my from you know just that kind of data point, it does seem like there is an increasing number of people who are kind of taking to heart that that climate change is something we need to deal with. Yeah, and and yourself, you've been concerned about it for a long time. Yeah, well, I don't. I must be a warrior by nature. I feel like I must have learned about climate change very young, and remember being, uh, you know, at a friend's sleeping over and keeping her up till all hours of the night worrying about what we were going to do about climate change when I was about 11 years old. So <laughs> I, you know, I worry about climate. I worry about biodiversity. I'm obviously, you know, easily worried about stuff, but, um, uh, you know, it, it's, I don't think it's necessary that everyone be that concerned, but at the same time, I think it is, uh, increasingly something that people are seeing very real impacts. And so it's becoming a lot more real, um, to your average Canadian than it was before. Yeah, we want we want them to be scared enough to act and not so scared that they're paralyzed, right? Yes, and I think that's a big part of meeting people where they are as well as sort of being able to say, okay, you know, you're sort of taking this into consideration. Let's talk about the things that you can do and how you can start to engage. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's big things and sometimes it's little things, but I don't think that matters so much. I think humans in general really enjoy being able to feel like they can take an action and kind of be in control. We like to be in control of things. Um, and so being able to give people that sense of, of agency and, um, and, and confidence that there is something that they can do that will make a difference um, is really important in helping people sort of build a group of people willing to move forward. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, Jim, it sounds like Florence was really worried about climate change at an early age. I wonder, how does that compare to the general population? Are people worried enough about climate change? That's a great question. It really depends on the person. There are some people who aren't concerned enough, obviously, and then some people are overwhelmed by their anxiety about it. So that's one of the tricky things about climate change communication is we want people to be scared enough to act and do something about it, but not so scared that they feel hopeless. Let's talk about people who don't believe in climate change. I, you know, it, it, there are, there's a lot of evidence that people are we're really sensitive to danger, right? Like we're hardwired to sort of sense any threats. So mm -hmm. why doesn't climate change activate this urgent sense of danger? Yeah, climate change contains none of the clear signals that we instinctively use to detect danger and threat. Uh, we're sort of optimized for um, things that are right in front of us, but climate change is a long-term problem. 
And uh, in general, people tend to ignore problems that um, where the worst effects are going to be like 50 years away. So even for people who do believe in climate change, they kind of accept it as a part of reality. And then um, they need something to get really worse to pay attention again, right? Like it, people habituate to situations and something has to change for them to pay attention to it. And so when you have like a slowly creeping threat, uh, it doesn't really set off our psychological alarms. Um, so if the temperature and the weather are changing slowly enough, I mean, really, psychologically, you don't really even notice. Like you can intellectually find out, but you don't really notice anything. Um, some new temperature or heat wave, it feels like the new status quo. Um, so I was reading once about fish scientists and apparently what they tend to do is they, you know, they, they can count the number of fish in the ocean or in some in the seas. Um, and then they see it decrease over their lifetime, but they have this assumption they don't really admit it to themselves, but they think that when they entered the field was sort of the state of nature. <laughs> and everything that like come, came after was like terrible, not realizing that even when they got into the field, it had been, you know, the, the number of fish in the sea has been decreased substantially from earlier times. So people just have this idea of like, you know, a set point um, when, when th what things are normal and then how things are going to change depends on whether they can notice that change. It reminds me of people's beliefs around like getting cancer and lifestyle and aging, right? Like if something is changing so slowly, you, you don't notice that for, or even weight gain, right? Mm -hmm. That the amount of food that you're eating in any given day is probably not going to cause you to wake up the next morning and have gained 20 pounds, but it's like the slow change. And then one day we almost wake up and go, whoa, what happened? Yeah. So I wonder, right, yeah. yeah, is that different for people who go through any like climate, like people who might experience problems related to climate change? No, people, no. So this is really interesting. People who have gone through problems that were, you know, pretty much directly caused by climate change, um, aren't actually that different from people who haven't experienced it. So, um, when you look at people who experience some kind of climate change disaster, maybe a flood or, or a terrible heat wave or something, they don't even talk about climate change. Um, because here, when, when people are going through a disaster, they tend to look for common ground. And there's this, this social convention to avoid controversial topics. So a good example of this is like uh, when the Sandy Hook school shooting happened. President Obama did not take it as an opportunity to promote gun control. You know, everyone would have recognized that that would be a, you know, a political move. And he they would have looked down on him for taking advantage of a bad situation, right? And because climate change... It, it, people think of it as a, um, a political topic, not just an environmental one. Um, they tend to not talk about it, uh, d d you know, even when they are in the midst of a climate change disaster themselves. Hmm. It's interesting. There's definitely a role for politics in here. Um, and what so what do we know about people who don't believe in climate change? So I read a really good book by George Marshall called Don't Even Think About It, and it's about the psychology of climate change. Uh, and he talks about climate change, people who are against climate change in two different groups. They're climate change skeptics, and skeptics doubt climate change because of evidence that they marshal for it. And then there are climate change deniers who don't even bother with evidence, but because of ideological reasons, they, they don't believe in climate change or they don't believe that humans are causing it. Usually this is because they have political disagreements with some of the solutions to climate change, like uh, infringing on their freedom or something like that. Interestingly, there's no correlation between IQ and belief in climate change. That's, that's shocking. <laughs> you tend to believe that, right? You tend to think that it has something to do with your baseline evidence uh, well, or people, baseline and intelligence. And people, and people on both sides of the issue think that. 
Like the the people who are against climate change mm. think that the smart that smarter people, you know, believe um, don't, don't believe, believe in climate, in climate change? change. Yeah. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> that's discouraging. So evidence factors into a lot of people's beliefs, either for or against climate well, change. Yeah. So people like evidence, and they they marshal evidence for the belief that they have. And when we're lucky, then the the evidence actually causes the belief. Um, but Unfortunately, that doesn't—it doesn't always happen in that order. Um, for lots of things, not just climate change, people will have a belief for a reason they might not even know, and then they will, like a kind of like a lawyer, marshal or, or like a debate, a debate team, they will marshal evidence for that belief, and so it's kind of the tail wagging the dog. You know, you have the belief first, and then you justify it with a bunch of evidence. Um, and that's, then, and that's what, and what's hard is that people tend to only trust evidence from other people who they think share their values. So, um, mm. you know, like a, a very liberal person, if they hear something they know is very far right, um, and they talk about some study or this or that, they'll just, they'll just, they'll just ignore it, you know. Um, and the same thing goes on the other side. Um, so then people attend to only certain sources, and then there's this false consensus effect, which is that when you only interact with people who agree with you, you tend to think that everyone's on your side and that the people who disagree with you are uh, fringe outliers, right? Um, and then the other interesting thing about evidence is weather, right? And, and part of the problem with climate change is that you can't point to any individual weather event and say for sure that it was caused by climate change. There's always... Uh, it's always a myriad, con a big, big confluence of factors. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I see people uh, say, uh, oh, look, we had, a, we had a light winter. So we just had a, a, a relatively mild winter, right? Um, you know, it's tempting for people to say, oh, because of climate change. But if we, I mean, the weather is crazy. If we have a really cold winter next year, then are we going to allow the climate change deniers to have, to say that that's evidence that climate change isn't happening? Um, so the problem is that, all of the weather events can be interpreted according to what you believe about it. Um, so people can, it's very hard to change people's ideas once they have them. But 97% of climate scientists agree that climate change is happening and it's caused by human behavior. Right, right. So now 97% sounds like a lot. Um, but another way to think about it, maybe this is not different for you, but you know, if you take 100 climate scientists, and these are like, trained people, three of them are going to disagree. And mm -hmm. that's actually higher than some other um, things like, you know, the nature of argon or something like that, right? <laughs> Where you'd get like 100% agreement. But the fact that there are 3% three, uh, 3 of very trained people, that's something that uh, the, the deniers and the skeptics really focus on. Um, now, what's interesting, now, as somebody who's not an expert at climate science, which most people are, how do you how are you supposed to interpret this ninety seven percent agreement, right? Um, well, you know, people who uh, tend to not believe in climate change, they use the uncertainty to justify doing nothing. Uh, what's interesting is that they will look at an even greater uncertainty for other things and justify other measures. So military preparedness or whatever. Like what's the chance we're going to go to war? You know, um, even if, you know, even if there's a lot of uncertainty there about who we're going to go to war with and when and what the best way to prepare is, you know, they'll say, well, we have to be prepared just in case. But for some reason with climate change, they don't really have that kind of thing. You know, like an asteroids, asteroids hitting the Earth, like that could be a really disastrous thing. Turns out there's a very, very, very low chance of that happening, like in the next like thousand years. 
But, you know, you'll get some people um, saying we should do something about that. But on the other hand, they don't believe in climate change. They don't think we should do anything about it uh, because they look at the 3% of climate scientists who don't believe it. Um, I think there's a really neat uh, quote by uh, Dick Cheney who said, uh, even if there is only 1% chance of terrorists getting weapons of mass destruction, we must act as if it is a certainty. Uh, but for the same guy, Dick Cheney, you know, 97% chance of climate change being real wasn't enough for him to want to do anything about it. <laughs> I am fascinated by that disparity. You know, it's like, how can you hold those two beliefs in the same mind? And yet, you know, it's, 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 it's baffling and fascinating at the same time, which is, you know, partly why we're doing this podcast, because we're, all, <laughs> yeah. we're both fascinated with, with how people hold these kinds of beliefs. And I'm, I know it's it's it particularly your um, your area of interest is looking at you know why people believe in these kinds of things. Um, so let's talk about people who disagree with climate change for ideological reasons. Yeah, sure. And uh, as left leaning people, we we like to do that, but I think we should be fair um, because w what's true is that people who accept and reject climate change do it for ideological reasons. Um, so lots of people have ideas about climate change. Um, and their ideas tend to correlate with whether they're left or right wing. So both sides of the climate change debate see themselves as the underdog with enemies that, you know, talk about they care, but they really are interested in money and power, and they're biased by uncritical media. Um, so, you know, re really, both sides are uh, using ideology, like leading, the, leading their minds. But what about knowledge of science? Well, what's interesting is that um, knowledge of science used to predict belief in climate change. So I think it's pretty clear that if, you know, by some looking at the science, uh, it does support this idea of climate change. And um, I mean, it used to be that the more you knew about science, the more you more likely you were to believe in climate change. But that changed around 2010. It became politicized. And we talked a little bit about this in the coronavirus episode. Um, mm. well, once something becomes politicized, everybody, everybody thinks that um, the, the truth it, to the extent that there is a truth, is a matter of a political opinion. And then if somebody disagrees with you um, and they're on the other side of the political spectrum, you, you can discount what they say completely. So now you, you can't really predict very well what somebody believes about climate change based on their knowledge of science. And instead, it's better based on uh, what your what your politics are. So if you're left-wing, you tend to think it's a real problem and humans are causing it. And if you're right-wing, you're more likely to be a, a skeptic or a denier. And, and what's weird is that like the, uh, um, the people who don't believe in climate change now seem to have more understanding of the science. What? That's unbelievable. But to me, that doesn't, that doesn't jive in my mind. <laughs> uh, to, like, to me, it's about lack of information. But what you're saying is it's not lack of uh, information that's determining people's views. Right. And it's very common for uh, people and scientists especially to think that there's a, I guess I've heard it called the information deficit model, where people would just believe the right thing if they had the right information. Um, mm. But, you know, this is not really what seems to be happening here. Uh, and the reason that climate change deniers um, have uh, um, sometimes more scientific knowledge about the subject is because they actually go out and look for it, right? Now, they're going out and looking for the studies that support their views, but mm -hmm. because they, they are actually in the minority, um, they have reason to marshal those views. 
So, like, somebody who believes in climate change doesn't have to, like, what opportunities do they have to, to bring out a bunch of studies to, that are convincing when, when most of the people around them agree, right? Well, it reminds me a lot of the anti-vaccination movement. Very similar Right, um, right, right. Groups if you... of people that, you know, they're looking for evidence that vaccines cause great harm and more harm than uh, getting, you know, not getting vaccinated. And it's like the bullseye approach to information gathering, right? So if you're, if you're looking for, if you Google vaccines cause autism or vaccines cause neurological damage, you're going to find evidence, much like if you Google or search climate change isn't real or I don't know what the search terms might be. You're going to find <laughs> stuff, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And the challenge is like what I always say is with science, it, it's it's about marshalling evidence um, and the good evidence kind of flows to the top like cream. But some people don't have the training to be able to understand what is good evidence versus bad evidence. And I think we're all... Um, we're all susceptible to bias, right? Yes. Even in our own research. And I haven't seen studies of this, but I, I would bet that this knowing more about science for uh, the minority view is also true of the anti-vax movement and um, also psychic power, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, now, Kim, you understand this, but, you know, our readers might be interested. Like, you know, the way scientists find significance, if you hear like somebody got a significant result, what that really means is that it's probably not due to chance, right? When you're collecting messy data, there's a chance that your conclusion was supported just because you happened to get the wrong sample. And significance is saying that you have like a 95 or a 99% chance that it wasn't due to chance. But 95%, which is what like psychology used for many, many years, means that one out of every 20 studies is going to be garbage. You're going to mm -hmm. get a significant result even though mm -hmm. it was due to chance. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, I tell my class, and they're always shocked. They're like, yeah, you can find tons of studies supporting psychic power. <laughs> because for every 20 studies you do, one's going to come up significant. So <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. and that's why mm -hmm. it's like, there's these, it's like leveling up in science where you like, okay, just because there was a study doesn't necessarily mean, and then we have to have these meta-analyses, which people, you know, bless them, they're not trained to do. And, and that's one mm -hmm. of the reasons science communication is important because, you know, we can't expect people to understand the function, the nature of a meta-analysis and all that kind of thing. That's right. So let's go back to this climate change and the issue of like your politics and your ideology. What about people who don't have a strong political leaning? How might that impact their beliefs or opinions? Right. So people on the fence, uh, or I shouldn't say on the fence, people who are moderate or maybe, you know, not don't have a strong political opinion. Uh, they it was one thing. One finding was that they tend to have their opinions more affected by the weather. So if you ask uh people on a warm day or a cold day, whether they believe in climate change, like a particularly warm or cold day, summer or winter, um, the left-wing and right-wing people, their opinions don't change, but the independents do. So they're 70% more likely to believe in climate change on a warm day. <laughs> of course, right? Yeah. Well, well like you today, know, it's, it's, yeah, yeah if we're, right, we're, we're recording this on May 23rd and the sun is shining and I think it's supposed to be up to 29. Right? That's Celsius, it, it, everybody. Oh, Celsius, not Fahrenheit, um, which is un unseasonably warm uh, for May, uh, at least in Canada and in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would imagine that today might be a day where people might lean towards the belief that it is it is real. Right. And then so, and we had a, we just got out of a polar vortex. 
where <laughs> where we had snow at the beginning yes. of May, and you know where the climate change deniers can look at that and be like, huh, climate change, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, it snowed in Calgary yesterday. So. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so here, let's get to like this is the million dollar question, right? How do you change people's minds, right? Yeah. How so. Does, how, how can we do that? Right. If, if pumping studies and information into them doesn't do it, what does do it, right? So mm-hmm. it, it actually has a lot to do with framing and analogies and that kind of thing. Um, and, and climate change can be viewed in so many different ways. You can look at it as a gamble, as a, as a fever or a sickness, a ticking bomb, a space mission, a World War II. And, and depending on the analogy you use to understand climate change, it's going to bring to mind different risks and different solutions to the problem. But really, all of them are misleading because, you know, thinking of climate change as like a solvable problem um, is is it's just not what it is. Um, it's an irreversible, open-ended problem, and we need to manage it over time. And it's not just like we can just solve it, right? And it's not like, is it going to happen or is it not going to happen? It is happening. And it's, and it's you know... Um, it can be better or worse depending on our actions. And it's just like a long-term, it's more like your nutrition, you know, like you've got to constantly monitor your nutrition. It's not like you solve nutrition at age 20 and then you're good for life, right? And so what they found is that like, uh, you know, so we believe in climate change. If you want to convince, uh, say, people who are more right-wing to believe in climate change, uh, left-wing people are really bad at it. So one of the reasons they're really bad at it is that uh, well, first of all, the right-wing people don't trust them to begin with because the right-wing people think that the uh, left is using climate change um, as a way to gain more control over people and take away freedoms. So they're not going to believe them to begin with. Uh, but there has been some success, and this is usually uh, done by recruiting right-wing people who do believe in climate change. And there are, you know, there are some, of course. Um, and they are much better at talking to people, you know, convincing people. And this is partially because they share their values and they're more trusted source, but also they know how to talk to them. They talk about respect and authority and accountability. Um, you know, Jonathan Haidt did a really cool experiment where he, um, and he has this moral foundations theory where he talks about like purity and stuff. And he uh, talked to Republicans in the United States. And, and, and instead of saying like, uh, you know, the typical left-wing way of talking about climate change, he said like, you know, the, the um, actually this was environmental pollution, I think, but he said, um, he said, uh, uh, you know, we need to preserve the purity of America's rivers. You know, do you agree and would you want to, like, restrict pollution? And when you put it that way, they're much more receptive because purity is, like, according to Height's theory, a very core moral value um, to uh, right-wing people more than left-wing people, right? Um, so, you know, given that we think, you know, right-wing people think that the problem's overblown, um, you know, framing it in terms of their own particular values uh, is is a good way to do it. But left wing people, frankly, aren't that at good at even thinking of of those kind of ways to communicate. So the coda to all this is that climate change activists need allies on the right wing to know how to convince other right wingers. Yeah, and that's totally true. And it's and uh, you know, similar. You know, in fairness, it's also true uh, going the other way. If if right wingers want to convince left wingers of something, um, mm-hmm. they are not going to do well by appealing to the kinds of values that are idiosyncratic to left-wing people. Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible, in part, by mitochondria, 
for giving our neurons the energy to make sense of themselves. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.